Hi, I'm Adam Clare, and I make and teach game design. I guess make a game design. I make games. <laughs> you wanted to capture all of them. You're like, well, make games. Uh, yeah, I like it because I went, I found you on an unrelated, feels unrelated website where you sort of try to publicize and collect good news, which I thought was wonderful. And then I went stumbling through your bio and then, oh, there's all this video game stuff. So I thought that would make a, a great topic. So actually my first question is, I'm always curious, how did you start making video games the thing many people dream of? How did you start making video games? How young were you? What kind of pathway was this? Sure. So uh, I got into games in a very unorthodox way. <laughs> um, uh, so don't do not do what I did. The, <laughs> okay, uh, you're warning the them again. Because okay. uh, the industry has changed since I've been involved with it. Uh, and like I teach game design, right? When I was in school, that wasn't an option. Right. So already things like just that alone gives you like a sort of idea of how different things have become. And uh, so how do I get in the game? So uh, I've always been interested in uh, communication around ideas and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did the master's of education and the philosophy of education. And during that process, I was looking into what was at the time like web interactivity, like just to, in a nutshell, they get more precise, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and how do people communicate on the web? And like, what's the future of social networks and so on? And how can we best use those for education? So basically interactivity and communication, right? Mm -hmm. And from while I was doing that, I had a friend of mine who did a really cool, what's called an alternate reality game. And he did one that was like mind blowing, run by a massive corporation, and as part of their internship program. Uh, so he finished that, comes back to Toronto, where I'm located, and he uh, said, "Let's make a game like that here in the city." So we did. <laughs> and, and when you say, "Are you talking about one um, alternate reality uh, using?" Because I'm so I'm thinking about the kind of is it AR the stuff that will like. You know, you take a video of something that'll plant something inside your video that's not there. And then right. you go all so, the way to the goggles of the virtual reality. What did this look like? So alternate reality games are a bit different. They are basically games that are using the physical space as we know it and have it today. Mm -hmm. and, and, and knowledge space as we know and have it today. And leverage that to create uh, almost like a, 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 a adjacent reality, if you will. Okay. Uh, about like a story and a narrative and like a universe. So ours was, um, oh my gosh, it was so long ago. Uh, it was before AR was a thing. Uh, so I forget the main points of the story, but we had people going around the entire the city of Toronto, interacting with actors and interacting with the built environment to, to accomplish goals. Okay. And that was like puzzle design. And it was novel at the time. Nowadays, for, for people to, to better understand it, picture an escape room that is set not in a room an escape room set in a city that's cool so that's what we were the sort of stuff we're doing well if you ever seen the movie the game uh with michael douglas from like 1990 whatever uh that's also a good comparison but without the insanity that that movie has <laughs> the insanity and true danger maybe i'm sure there's some level of danger in that yeah uh i refuse to put game players in high-risk situations Okay. Uh, including even when I'm making escape rooms, I don't like locking the door. And a lot of escape room people do like locking the door because they think it adds tension. But being in a room with a closed door of itself, 
uh, and strangers potentially, that's already stressful for a lot of people. Locking the door just makes a lot of useless stress and increases the actual physical risk for players in a sense of what if there's a fire, what if there's yeah. some any other emergency in which people need to leave the space. And you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I try not to actually put any player into harm's way. So did did your did your video game stuff and your um, the AR stuff, the escape game, did this all stuff kind of happen post college or in college, or do you have like a long right. lineage? Most people who made video games, they have this long lineage of being obsessed with them and playing them as their little kids. But is that your story? Uh, well, like. I, I don't think my game playing growing up was exceptional. Um, uh, it, you know, there was a, 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 like failed attempts at getting Dungeons and Dragons going, uh, and there were successful attempts at getting like a Sega Genesis connected to the TV sort of thing. <laughs> so, like, I, I think it was pretty average uh, for that time and place. Uh, but to answer your question about like how I got to get back into games and to connect it to like what was I doing with schooling and so on. So uh, as I said, I was doing my massive educational making this citywide game with some other people. Yes. And so uh, then I graduated, but at the same, that game, I forget the exact sequence of events, but it all happened roughly, it all happened the same year. Uh, a production company reached out to a few of us who were working on that game to make uh, film and TV extensions, what they used to call transmedia which went beyond the film and TV production into like online games, online puzzles, physical puzzles for promotion, all, all, all that stuff. So we, so I started working there, did some film and TV. And during the process, I uh, met up with some people who were looking for a game designer to teach at a, at a local college here in Toronto, just by being in the right place at the right time. Sure luck. Like, I don't want to undervalue the ability to, uh, the, the fact that I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, some people don't get that opportunity uh, based off of their life and yeah. how things work for individuals. But thankfully uh, for me, uh, that wasn't uh, so much of an issue. So, uh, and, and I had the ability to say yes to a risky part-time teaching job because uh, that doesn't really pay the bills and how do you get the rest of your money to survive? So anyways, uh, so I started teaching game design uh, from making games for the interactive space from film and TV. And then I just kept making games there on out. And oh yeah, in between that, some point in there, created a company called Wiro Creative. Mm -hmm. And Wiro is the company that me and a friend, uh, we run, it's still alive today, uh, very active uh, in, in a very niche, <laughs> niche marketplace. Uh, and maybe very activist too, too, too big of an adjective there. But anywho, um, we make games still. And they are similar in concept to the games we, we've been making all along, going back like 10 years ago. So, and throughout that, I uh, kept teaching. I really like teaching. Again, games are an exploration of how we use knowledge and how we communicate knowledge, much like education is. So to me, games and education are two sides of the same coin. I guess that's a metaphor that works. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of how I got into this was more through uh, an educational philosophical exploration of how do we deal with knowledge about the world and around the world with us, which is the worst way to get into an industry. Who would do that? Who's like, oh, here's some advice. Go, uh, go just think about things and I hope it works out. <laughs> So I think it's interesting that you kind of have games and education. They're so closely wedded because I would say in the in the 
public imagination and in the common narrative, games are for sort of brain turny offy play and that they don't have to be work. And in many people's impression of education is compulsory education. So when they think of games, they don't think compulsory education. I know there are ways games get brought into a classroom oftentimes to sort of try to engage people, but games oftentimes are part of this wonderful level of play that doesn't involve kind of the regular work day, the regular school day. So in your impression, could you tell me how the games, do you see them on a spectrum? How do you see games that are educational, games that are not? Do you think all games are educational? How do you look at it? So I think we need to take a step back and actually talk about what gameplay is. Okay, good. Uh, so the act of play. So the act of play is different than playing a game. It sounds confusing, bear with me. <laughs> So when we are engaged in play, sorry, I just have to cough. Aga, one sec. <coughs> I hope this gets edited out, but if it doesn't, my apologies, people with headphones. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, so anyway, so to the act of play, um, when you're engaged in play, it's an exploration about the world, about the world around you, and it's a pure, purely voluntary activity. Yeah. So that includes things like playing house as a kid, uh, role playing as a kid, like, oh, I'm a doctor. Oh, now I'm master of the universe, like whatever, right? Yeah. That's pure voluntary play exploration. And it's also very transgressive in the sense that when you are engaged in that state of play, you are pushing boundaries. You're pushing to say like, hey, what is it to, what if I play house as some kids do, what am I actually doing? I'm, I'm trying to better understand what a house is in our societal context. Right? It's, it's through that play that you get to experiment with that. And we see this with adults too, and that lives on in adult form with like LARPing, which is live action role play, and even uh, Dungeons and Dragons, same idea, right? You're exploring, I want to be a hero. What does it mean to be a hero to me as an individual or yeah. me with this group of friends? So that active play is purely voluntarily, uh, voluntarily done, and it's an exploration of the world around you and of your inner self. So when a so that's important because that's play, right? Okay. When you're playing a game and you sit down and you're playing something like, uh, I don't know, Fortnite. That's a, <laughs> lots of people playing that right now. Maybe yes. not so many as they once was, but there's a lot of people. Uh, you're, you're still playing a game. You're engaged with it. You're engaged with the rule set. You're engaged with the system. You're still interacting with other people. Uh, it's still play. But it's not as transgressive to play Fortnite as it would to, to play with, with say, uh, roles within a society or a hierarchy or some such like that. Uh, so when when debating between what is like when you think about education and games and bringing in the classic, okay, kids sit down play this educational game and everyone's like, oh, this is the worst. <laughs> yes, uh, right. We've all had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have. And uh, even when I teach game design, and if I say, all right, students, we're going to play a game, I still see eyes roll. They're like, oh, <laughs> it's like you're in a game design course. And yeah, they should explain we're playing games. Like, yes, they will, because there's a key thing here. Remember how I said that the act of play is voluntary and transgressive? Yes. What is voluntary playing in a classroom when the teacher says, play this game you have to in order to pass? You're being forced to do it. Correct. So already it's frustrating. Right, so you're not going to have the same enjoyment with that piece of game, whatever it is, uh, as you would if you voluntarily went to the activity yourself, because the motivating factor is fundamentally different. 
And that's true with workplaces. So adults, um, I, I make corporate games for corporations as well. And same problem exists there. So if you're dealing with adults and they're like, oh, my boss made me play this game, they're gonna hate it just as much as those games their their teachers made them play. Okay. But at the same time, those same players will sit down and play like Sim City and fully understand how cities operate, no problem. But if you said you have to sit down and you have to play Sim City and you have to understand how cities work, they'd be like, I hate you and I hate this game. <laughs> that, that seems to be a problem. That willingness seems to be a core problem with this time. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the, uh, that state of play, and uh, often because I teach a first year uh, college course on this, um, a lot of students get really confused like, because uh, when you get into that aspect of what is playing, what isn't playing, it revolves a lot around a lot of what the self, the individual, and their uh, ability to express agency and express their own individuality inside of a experience. So it's very subjective. Yes, it is very subjective. Were you at that end where you're talking about their their agency in that moment. Um, when you explore these in the educational environment, so you're asking people to think about game design. And so they do have to get over that hurdle of, so the first part is, look, we need to look at these things in a structured way. So it's going to be a little less fun than just sitting around and playing a game whenever you want, because there are certain things I want you to learn from this learning about games. Do you teach, what are, what are you teaching them over the course of that about how games operate what are the components of them? Like, what are the levers they can pull up and down? There's some games that give you a ton of agency or a feeling of agency. And there's other ones that make you feel like you have very few choices. What are kind of the levers that get pulled on those games? All depends on what you're trying to do. Okay. <laughs> so it's goal. You kind of, is that what you tell them? What is your goal for this game? Yeah. So as okay. a designer, one of the roles as a game designer is to figure out what is the intended experience that players should have from playing that game? And as a designer, you have to be the one to uh, orchestrate it so that those experiences are met and those goals are achieved. So I'll give you a, a quick example of yeah. the current project. The one that I was talking, um, uh, it's about, uh, it's about uh, small fish in Ontario. Uh, called the Red Dace. It's like uh, about 10 to 12 centimeters long. I don't know what that is in Imperial. My apologies. <laughs> it's tiny. And uh, this fish, uh, we're, what we're trying to do right now is with a few uh, universities up here, is make a simulation for first year university students to better understand how fish, uh, this particular species of fish, can survive in, in Ontario. It's right now endangered or high risk. And so we're creating a system which we're very much limiting what the player can do, but we're also giving the player a lot of opportunity in how they could save the fish at the same time. So it's what tools are we giving the player do to overcome the challenge we're giving them that makes them feel like they have enough agency or not enough agency. So in this game, if we give the player the ability to do like avatar creation and make, the, make, make themselves appear the way they want to appear in the game, that doesn't really add agency to this particular type of game because it's about fish, it's not about people. Uh, what well, is about people? People are the ones destroying the fish habitat. <laughs> but, but it's not about the player taking on the role of a person. It's about the player trying to save the fish. So the, the opportunity we give the player in that game is different because the goal of the game is different than say World of Warcraft or any large uh, game like that. 
don't know if that answered your question or it's just like rambling. <laughs> no, it does. I, I am curious about that because I think what you're talking, I think you gave a very good example. It, what could be a very uh, beautiful educational game. And you said how that might be a little different because there's less of an emphasis on people as opposed to let's say World of Warcraft or some Call of Duty sh shooter. Uh, what, what, what do you think? Do you think when people sit down to play a game, they always have a goal, even if they don't recognize it. I mean, so if you sat down and asked yourself, well, what's the goal of World of Warcraft or what's the goal of Settlers of Catan or the goal of Monopoly? Not only what are you hoping as an individual to get out of this game, which might be a multitude of things, but what did the designers hope you would get out of it? And then what happens when that fails? So I'm just thinking about that idea of a goal behind games as different from that play. The play is very transgressive, wild imagination. Just imagine anything that isn't and how could things be different and what would that look like? These feel more narrowed down. So how do you, how do you think that through? What the people bring to the game, what their goals are, and then what your goal is hoping that they'd get out of it, which seems like tough because they're bringing anything to that and then you're hoping they'll get something from it. Sure, so uh, a racing game actually is a good example of this. Hmm. <laughs> so, like a car racing game, right? Yes. So car racing game, what's the goal of the designers to make the players feel like they're racing automobiles and that okay. it's fun and exciting, right? Um, and <clears throat> We, uh, we then create, you know, we give them the cars, we give them the tracks, we give them the, the time trials, all the things that a racing game have. And that's the intent of the designer, intent of the studio, intent of everybody involved in the creation of the game. Great, you give it to the players, they go off and they have a great time, or they don't, but they get that experience of racing a car. Yeah. Uh, but then what the players can do is something a bit more they can actually say, I don't want the intended experience of racing a car and how they've done it. I want to have a different experience. And so I forget how many years ago, but I don't, I don't even know if it's so popular in, in racing car games, yeah. but there used to be a, a mode where players would, would select one player who would take a really bad car. <laughs> on uh, purpose. So they'd pick a bad purpose. car on purpose. Okay. And, and they would drive, I think it was, they would drive the wrong direction on a race course. <laughs> All the other cars had to go the correct direction and the, the car that pushed the bad car over the finish line as in got it got it back to where it started won the race <laughs> that's right? brilliant that's the that's the kind of twisted stuff i do in games so i very much appreciate this <laughs> right and so that that gives the like that's that's agency that the players have given themselves they said i'm going outside of the intended design experience and i'm going to do this thing in it and that to me, I think that's beautiful. I love it when players do that. I think it's just great because it means they, they have an understanding of the rules, they have an understanding of the system, and they know how they can manipulate it for their own better enjoyment. I think that's wonderful. What happens if you have made, you've, you've created the intricate educational game about a very small fish and about how to save it, and then the people wind up having all kinds of fun playing your game, seeing how fast they can kill the fish? Yeah, that's fine. Because, <laughs> uh, like, go right ahead. Um, that's the point, right? Like, if they learn how to kill that fish really fast, they've also learned what not to do in real life. Okay. That, and, yes. and that's the point of this game is to educate people who are going into the world of e into ecology just broadly. Because um, they might go into aquifers, they might go into land management, they might go into all these different aspects, right? This yeah. is again, this is first year, so it's broad strokes. And 
that's great. They now know a little bit more than they did before. Mission accomplished. Do you ever find if you're trying to, because I'm thinking of de developing lesson plans and you think of how many possible ways are they, to, there are so many millions of ways to spin off of whatever topic you're trying to teach. If they go into that game not to kill the fish or save it, what if they find out, what if through their own exploration, they figure out you have these five levers you're pulling to try to save or hurt the fish. And they find out some of the levers you've worked on as a game designer, they're, they, don't even, they don't even matter. This one lever, you've spent the five levers. I guess, again, they've still learned something. They learned this lever is more important than all the other levers. So this, this is, uh, no, you're onto something important there. And that's where the role of experts come in. So like the project I was trying to do with the fish, that's yeah. actually like, we're, I'm just leading the game design portion. I'm not an expert in fish. I don't know much <laughs> about them. Right. Uh, and nor nor do I necessarily need to, because we have a very very smart people with like PhDs and masters and all, all these amazing knowledge that they have. I go to them and I'm like, you tell me what you want people to know about this. And then, uh, as designers, we go and we translate that information into something that the player can understand in in, in context of the game. So, when it comes to thinking oh the players are doing they figure out that one aspect of the game isn't as powerful as the other that hierarchy of what impacts the most or what makes the biggest difference that's given to us by the experts so if they're exploring the system by figuring out oh that doesn't make a big difference and that does again that's a perfect thing to figure out because that's the intent of the game yes and that's that's based off of the experts telling us this is how it operates. I want to compare that game that you're talking about with that game sounds like, and not in a bad way, but it sounds like rhetoric. Somebody has told you what they want these people to know or learn, and you are translating that into an enjoyable educational experience. You made a game called The Trolley Problem, which I just played like a week and a half ago. I thought it was interesting because I think that game is different than the game you're describing because the game you're describing has experts who've clearly delineated what they want in these people's brains. And I think the trolley problem is a fun exploration. I want you to talk about it because I don't think it demands that you go one way or another. It demands what you're supposed to learn, but maybe it does. Maybe I misunderstood the trolley problem. So tell me about your game, the trolley problem and what your goal was for it. Sure. Um... The uh, trolley problem is based off of a philosophical quandary called the philosophical <laughs> the trolley problem, <laughs> and in that uh, is a, a trolley or like a runaway streetcar um, is going down a track, and there and there's a fork in the track. The train can either keep going straight or it could go to the to the left, let's say. Okay. And and the traditional situation is you're on a bridge and you're looking at the jet this runaway train. And in front of you is a switch that will change the direction of the train from going straight to left. This matters because on the track in front of the train are five workers working on the rail. And they'll be hit by the train unless the train goes to the left where there's one worker. And the question is, do you flip the switch to save five, but that means one is being killed. Right. And that's the classic trolley problem. So that was made by Philippa Foote. Um, she's a really cool philosopher over in the UK. Uh, well, was I don't think she's uh, with us anymore? But um, uh, she, yeah, she was actually 
part of a really cool group of women philosophers that we don't get enough attention to. It's really sad how male philosophers get so much more attention than female philosophers. But anyways, that's a different issue. The uh, Did they, I'm, I am curious about that. Were they part of, like you talk, are they a group? Were they like a named group, like the Bloomsbury group or? It's, it's funny you ask that because there are people trying to say like we should. <laughs> right, they should. need, yes. Maybe yeah. that's marketing. They need a good name. Yeah, I don't think philosophers and marketing go hand in hand. Often. No, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so uh, they, the, since then, since Philip Foote created that, there's been a lot of exploration into that. And there's some really cool books that have been written uh, around this because you switch out a runaway train, just a, a, an extreme, more extreme examples. There's a, instead of a runaway train hitting five people and, and you have to you know think maybe it hits the one, picture being a doctor right now right and yes. uh you know to give it to give a very like very on the ground 2020 2021 sort of notion this has, this has happened throughout the last year around the world where doctors have to have make a decision who gets the intubation to survive from covid right yes. and i think it's it's really unfair we put doctors in this situation i think we should do a lot more work before these things occur oh, yeah. Doctors in but, the Western world should not be required to triage. This is not a thing that we should have. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there for improvement in our healthcare system. Um, so with the, uh, so instead of five people versus one, you might say like, well, we have this one person who has the tube in them. They're being saved, but now we have five people who also need the tube. Do we take out that one tube and give it to the others? Is that like, it's a bad metaphor, but that's an option. Another, another yes. way of doing this in healthcare setting is saying, let's say you have a person who has, uh, they're, they're about to die and it's acceptable to say, okay, they're, they're dead now, let's take their organs, give them to other people. That's acceptable if they're an organ donor, right? Yes. Then their organs get donated and so on. But in the trolley example, if you think it's okay to sacrifice one person to save five, what if we ran hospitals that way? And if you as a healthy individual walked in the hospital and they're like, we have five people right now who need organs, and you're one, and you have enough organs to save those five. We're taking your organs and giving them to the five people. <laughs> right? That yeah. sounds ridiculous, but yet it sounds reasonable when we say there's a runaway train headed to five people. If you kill that one person off to the side who's not in the direction the train is traveling, then you can save those five people. You just got to kill one. And people are okay with that. But they're not okay with us. Uh, taking somebody in the hospital who's perfectly healthy, chopping them up and <laughs> distributing their goods to another five. Okay, this is fascinating to me because when I played the trolley problem, so I, I'd, I'd heard of the trolley problem before and I'd love, there are so many permutations of this. Like how many yeah. wrinkles can you think of to wrinkle this thing? And they're almost all in there. My rule that I sort of sat with when I, the game got me thinking about this. So it didn't, I feel like the game didn't tell me whether I could be wrong. So you need to tell me if your goal was, if your goal was to tell me that the right thing to do is to pull the lever and save the five, because in my head, I think there's a difference between actively choosing to who lives and dies in exactly that way or passively letting it happen. And so it ran you through all those things. Is this person rich? Is this person poor? Is this person bad? Is this person good? Is this person sick? Is this person healthy? If you actively choose, that was the part that, that was the wrinkle that I thought, well, maybe I would not pull the lever and the five workers would die because I don't think it's my, I don't think, why should I be the one to decide who lives and who dies? 
that's a man, that's a troubling thing. So what did you, what do you want people to get from the trolley problem problem game? I want people to have this conversation. <laughs> Perfect score. Uh, and it sounds like a trite answer, but it actually was the goal, right? Um, the, uh, everyone has different responses. Uh, there is some data looking into like when they run psychology tests, tests or experiments, whatever. Yeah. Be like, what would you do in this situation? It's very clear that but 90% of the people, and you might not like this, 90% of the people will flip the switch to sacrifice the one person to save the five. And uh, that's, that's, that's like the vast majority of people in the West do that. And you change up the situation as I did in the trolley game and yes. you start to get different results. So there's something going on in our brains, at least we have this contextual moral judgments that occur. And why are we thinking the way, like why are we thinking in that particular way? That's what I find interesting, right? And that's like why games education to me are, are very much connected. Because the tri-bomb game is about exploring what do I, how do I go about making my decisions about the world around me, right? And yes. that is what education ought to be about. <laughs> I agree. So here's my, I want to go back to, I don't, the educational game that most of us see is if there's a spectrum on um, what is it trying to tell you? I feel like so many educational games out there, they are really just an excuse to take, um, these are the facts about the situation. And this is how I think you should decide this. If you run into this into the world, this is how I think you should figure this out. They tell you in advance, the teacher knows in advance at the beginning of the lesson and the end of the lesson, what the result is supposed to be for you. And I think the idea lesson, exactly what you just talked about, which is you need to learn to think about this. And then I'm not telling you what you should do at the end. I feel like a lot of educational games try to tell you what you're supposed to think by the end of the game. And I don't yeah, know if that's good or bad. I think that's bad. I, I would say it's a bad educational game, flat out, because it's ignoring everything we just talked about. <laughs> right, right down to agency, right down to giving like people choice and opportunity, et cetera. Um, it's not, it's not good, not good design. Yes. Right. And this is what happens when you have people who don't know game design make educational games. And I think that's a symptom of uh, our educational system overall. Right, a lot of our education system is about pass the next test, make the next checkpoint, and that's not interesting. <laughs> exactly. uh, it's really dull. And if we start saying, like, if we start treating education, and we we if we start, we are treating education like a uh, like a bankable commodity in which if you just like the matrix, if I could just download that knowledge, <laughs> I could go. right, I can put a chip in my head and learn everything I need to learn. Yeah, but knowing information is fundamentally useless if you don't know how to use that information. And I don't think we're doing enough education in the West around this is, this is about thinking, this is about critical thinking, this is about better deciphering what information, how, the information source, how to use that information, and how do I as an individual make sense of that information and where places where I'm okay, acquiescing control over information and why and why not. And I think it's a, it's a fundamental skill we need in the 21st century. And we're just, we're just lacking it because we have a 20th century model of education, which is like get core literacy, get, get basic functioning, and you can get a job and survive. Right. And that's no longer the case. Uh, we have gone too far off the deep end with that. And I, I think it's to our detriment. Like if you look at the climate change debate, 
the fact that we even listen to people who think climate change isn't happening, waste of time, right? Like even right now, I, I'd love to give you a much cooler, edgier example, but no, we're being held back by people who don't know how to think. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's a big, big thing. This leads me, because I do want to talk about this leads me to your next game, which I saw and haven't played. I don't know if it's released yet, but you're doing a game about the suburbs and the mixture of people and nature in the suburbs. You know, what are the problems caused by this suburban sprawl that, that's right. sort of infected so, all cities? First off, if anyone goes to play that game, don't bother. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I appreciate the warning. All right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a bad game. Like in terms of gameplay, in terms of what you can do, in terms of activity, it's bad. Um, but that wasn't why I made the game. The game was made in a weekend as okay. a game jam exercise. So these are like 48 hours, make a game in 48 hours, right? Sometimes people make really fun games in 48 hours. <laughs> Sometimes it should do what I do and just an explore an idea and it just comes out as yeah. <laughs> whatever. So in that game, I was interested in a few things uh, which are influencing that fish game that I'm currently talking about, right? Okay. So things like, can I use satellite data to make maps? Can I input data from the real world into a game and effectively use it as a game designer in a meaningful way around the environment? So I learned quite a few things in that process, which are now being applied to the fish game, which is really cool because we have GIS information and all this cool stuff coming in that game from, from the experts, right? Okay. So awesome. So the, that's one of the things, but the core concept of the game uh, came from when I was on a hike uh, in a, um, like a provincial park up here, or I think like a state park sort of thing. So you guys mm -hmm. would have. And uh, we were up there for a walk and found a map. And it was just like, this is where you are. You've all seen those maps, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is where the trails go. And I looked at it and I was just like doing a level design course. And I was like, wait a minute, this is really awful level design. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is bad level design. And by the way, when I go through things like airports and train stations and so on, my partner, uh, I start ranting about how bad the level design is. My partner is just like, shut up. I don't care anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we're at this hike and I'm like, again, my head's back into this level design place. And I realized what we've done is we've sort of caged in animals into like, a, we've, we have created zoos that are parks. So animals aren't free to roam. They are incredibly at high risk. They're caged in by roadways, highways, uh, whatever, right? And they are constantly, their, their territory is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we expand, expand, expand. That's horrible. Nobody likes that. And yet we keep doing it. So I, I want to explore, because people don't get, okay, another, sorry, another key concept behind this is that people don't know what the past used to be like. Because we weren't there. We didn't have a chance to live it. So what is normal for somebody born in 1900 in terms of urban sprawl? And how much forest and how how lush a forest is to be called a forest is very different than somebody born in the year 2000. Yeah. And throughout that, it's very different. Like I, I have students that I'm working on this fish game with, and we were talking about this concept of people, uh, their uh, what they consider normal is different. So for me, I was like, well, before like the houses weren't this far out, there was farmland there. And yeah. they're like, well, there's always been farm. There's never been farmland in this part of Ontario my entire life. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the problem, right? So their baseline for how much farmland there ought to be around the city or how much forest there should be and how dense a forest should be is very different than me, 
we're not separated by many decades. In fact, maybe even maybe even just two decades, right? Maybe one. Like I don't know. But point is, we're not that far apart temporally. Yet we have such a different understanding of what is quote unquote normal. So how do we get people to understand that the current level of urban sprawl and low density development is abnormal, irresponsible also? And how do we communicate that to players? Well, my, my goal is to put them in uh, the uh, perspective of an animal trying to survive in that in, throughout like a hundred years. Yeah. But of course, no animal lives a hundred years other than like cool turtles and elephants and stuff, but we don't have those ones in Ontario. <laughs> so, right. so I was like, well, then how do I do that? So I, I settled on using a mythological creature uh, to say like, you are being called back to protect the animals and the areas you keep, you keep getting called back at an increasing frequency because the world's getting worse. Okay. And, and the final level in that game could be called 2021. Like maybe it is, I don't know. Cause like in, in British Columbia up here, in, I, I guess like the California fires you guys have down there, we, we already lost an entire town this year in Canada to fires, which I guess is worst case in California. But this is absurd. The fact that we even talk about there being a fire season to me is a, like just I, absolutely insane. And then we talk about this as if it's normal. And I think we really got to rethink what we're doing. And that's what I made that game for is to say like, hey, like wake up people, like this is not how it should be. Because that final level is like a cloudy level of just pure destruction. And it's set in a strip mall parking lot or like the mar parking lot of a like Walmart or whatever, right? Because those capture like the destruction of the planet in a built, built form. So the interesting thing, so you were talking about climate change and we're, now we're talking about suburban sprawl and it kind of peels back into climate change. The one thing I see lacking in the climate change debate generally, and the reason why I think people can easily become entrenched in both sides is one side uh, is worried about, is worried primarily about nature and long-term sustainability. And another side is worried about short-term costs to people. But those short-term costs are not nothing, but, but it becomes, so it's interesting. I don't see the climate change, either you like nature or you like people. And the, the nature people do argue that overall, this is bad for us too, which makes perfect sense. But there's a reason why there's suburban sprawl. There's a reason we're burning all the fuel. There's a reason we're doing this. And so I'm wondering in your games, do you try to incorporate, for instance, the fish game, it's probably fish just don't die for no reason. There's probably who are making money and who are, their lives are better because we're doing things to make things worse for that fish. Do you incorporate that kind of economic human financial thing into these games? Or do you think kind of the other side, it's so overwhelmingly important, you don't include that? So there's a few, quite a few things there. I don't know where to start. Um, one, uh, I don't think there is a climate change debate. I, 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 maybe you're saying the climate change debate is something fundamentally different than what I understand it to be, because my understanding is people debate whether or not it's happening. Oh, no, sorry. I'm not debating whether it's happening, but I'm okay. debating. There's another group that debates about the balance of how fast could we make change? How damaging would that be to people's livelihoods and life now? Okay. That's what, yeah. I don't think we should listen to those people. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't, I don't, I quite like, Quite frankly, I don't understand their rationale. Lytton, BC was a town that burned down. That town had, I don't know how many millions upon millions of dollars invested in it in its embodied environment. 
I don't know the economy of the town, but I'm sure again, lots of money there. The cost of replacing that town, if you're talking about short-term consequences, the cost of replacing towns that have burnt down, that's a massive, massive cost. The cost of sending firefighters all over the continent to put out fires, massive cost. The debate between long-term and short-term costs is a waste of time. We clearly need to act now. The report that came out on Monday from the IPCC uh, saying that we're in a red, like, red alert, yeah. We can't debate whether or not we should do something to protect the environment. It's not, do humans survive, do animals survive? That's not the question. The question is, does life on Earth continue the way we know it or not? And people say, well, we can't change the markets for this. I don't know if I could swear in your podcast, but I Yes, you can. Feel free. Because <laughs> the markets are bullshit, right? When I think COVID really showed that to us. We have an endless supply of money, apparently, to give to billionaires to make sure their businesses don't go under. Yet we don't have that same supply to make sure we don't literally die and burn to the ground. That's really weird. The markets are a rule-based system, much like games. We could change the rules of the market to favor the environment very easily. We know how to do this. There's a lack of will to do it. And that's the problem. So this so you, debate you about don't, should we spend money? You don't think no. the problem is that we, we, you think we have a full understanding of the climate and we have a full understanding of economic markets so that like a game, a video game, all we have to do is pull levers and the world is better for everyone, but we just don't have political will to do it. Do we need a full understanding? I don't think so. Do we know that carbon output is the highest it's ever been in humanity? Do we, yes. <laughs> right? We know that already. We, we have enough knowledge to make the world a better place. We're just not doing it. And the reason we're not doing it is because oil industry and similar industries are spending billions of dollars trying to convince us, like the tobacco industry did, that it's a non-issue. And so to bring that back to the suburban sprawl, because I wondered about yeah, this. Sure. And I yeah, didn't, yeah, yeah. I want, but no, but I think that I totally think they're connected. Climate I, change I, is yeah. a is a catastrophe. Whereas it's interesting, if you wanted to back off on severity, suburban sprawl is something we don't like and it's bad for nature and it's ugly. And ultimately it's all focused on the car. It's not for human beings sustainable. It's just a bad idea, but it's not the same bad idea. The world won't end if we keep building suburbs for the next 20 years, but we could have catastrophic global things from climate change. But the same problems in suburban sprawl, either people maybe are convincing us we want things we don't want, but there's things people want out of the suburbs and they're just not getting them. So it's interesting, why are the suburbs there? Is it because we're being sold things we don't want? Or is it because people are used to the suburbs and they can get used to something else? How did you sort of play that out? Because the argument that it's bad for animals and plants, I mean, I just see that every day. It's just, it's ugly and things can't, things, nature was not meant to live in the suburbs. We, I think we were barely meant to live, but there, it's not as terrible. How did you, how did you want people to think about as you built that game, how did you want, they would think about the animals, but how would, how might that reframe their thinking? What, what did you want them to do? Well, I'd like to people to realize that suburbs are new. <laughs> they are. New, I, they're a new idea. Uh, they are bad for animals. As you said, they are bad for plants. We, this, no one debates that. Nobody's right. out there like, oh, but the suburbs <laughs> are great for lawns. Right, right. Because 
like lawns aren't natural. Right. In fact, like after World War II in North America, lawns switched from clover dominant lawns to grass dominant lawns. And that's actually been very harmful to insect species. The act of expanding on the suburbs is destroying the planet. <laughs> I would disagree with you there. Like, if we keep it is related for next, sure. Yes. If if we keep building suburbs for the next twenty years, yes, we are dooming ourselves to failure. <laughs> I think it's unequivocal. And uh, and do we need to drastically change the suburbs? Absolutely, we do. Absolutely. So we have a uh, political leadership here in Ontario, which try to get rid of something in Ontario called the Green Belt, which is to protect a strip of land on the outside of Toronto area. Okay. And he's very corrupt, this our, our local leader or provincial leader, uh, and in bed with the developer companies that make houses. And he was basically parceling off land, and this is being investigated and so on. So, you know, it's all alleged. I should say this is allegedly. Totally. Happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, you can't see the air quotes around allegedly. <laughs> uh, but, but, anyways, it's very obvious that he is giving the land to housing developers to build more suburban small. And in fact, they want to build another highway, and highways increase suburban sprawl. Suburban sprawl increases the use of cars. And people are like, well, electric cars. Well, electric cars still burn in right. forest fires. Electric cars still get impacted by floods. Electric cars aren't the thing that are going to save us. Public transit will save us. And how do we have public transit? Well, we have high-density housing. And so if people are too sad and mad that they can't have a sprawling yard in the suburbs, tough. Go, go move to a rural area if that's what you really want. Don't, don't pretend that you could live in a city and have a suburban lifestyle at the same time. So I, I was going to ask, yeah, I, I was going to ask about that um, because the suburbs were sort of, I mean, first of all, I think you make a strong argument that they were marketed, the suburbs were marketed by people who wanted to sell you cars. Hey, you know, you don't have to live in the city. It's all dirty and yucky. You can go live in this semi-city kind of place out here and you can just drive everywhere in your car. So that yeah, presents like, a problem. But there also, is a problem with living in the city. Living in the city in high density housing causes its own problem. The, there's a reason people want to get away from other people. I mean, they want to go to nature to get away from other people. So then the question is, where do these people who have the funds, they don't want to live in the city anymore. So the only alternative is they have to live in some tiny town in Arkansas or, or an hour and a half outside the city. So it's either jammed in the city or out. I wonder... The, I wonder if there's some new hybrid that would come out instead of suburbs that we could do. I have no idea. Well, we started to see that with the creation of the Green Belt. We started to see increased density mixed with better parklands mm -hmm. in Ontario. That started to happen until we got the most recent leader. Uh, <laughs> so sad. Um, and uh, the, uh, yeah. So what, what did we do? Well, I think we got to make our cities better places to live. I think, again, we saw that during lockdowns and so on about ways to do that. Yeah. Freeing streets up from cars back, giving streets back to people after a hundred years of taking streets away from people, I think is a great help. Make the cities more livable for sure. But low, and, I, and another way of doing it is if people wanna pay for the low density housing costs in terms of like increased sewer maintenance, increased electrical infrastructure maintenance, uh, increase of road costs of maintaining a road, um, great. Pay the actual cost for living that way. But you're going to see that that is a very expensive way of living when you don't subsidize it by new development or higher density neighborhoods. So, uh, and I, I just want to also call, like, we can't ignore the history of the creation of the suburbs with this stuff. The suburbs are created and people who left the city were primarily white people. 
And we have this racist expansion of the suburbs at the expense of, expense of letting cities die out where there's a, a, a bigger population of non-white individuals. And that has cascading ripples to today. We also know if you look at that thingsaregood.com, right? My good news site. Yes. Um, if, you, if you read the subtext and all the posts with suburbs, you'll notice that there's a lot of mindfulness problems with it where like, uh, people have higher stress in the suburbs. You think that a lot of things we associate with city living are actually better associated with suburban living. The isolation of communities, the lack of neighborhood cohesion, the lack of uh, friendly walks on the street. You actually see those problems more in, or enhanced and, and greater problems in the suburbs than you do in urban centers, which is fascinating because that goes, that's counterintuitive. It right? is. We, an, think, and it we makes, think of the cities as violent places, but they aren't. We're seeing more violence and you're more likely to, in, in Canada, you're more likely to die a violent death in the suburbs than you are in a city. So I, I do know, I mean, I think about, for instance, these people, so our mannerly kind of suburban homes are sort of, they're, they're made up after these English manners, but the wealthy royalty who lived in these country houses in, in, in Europe, uh, they lived in the city most of the time or lived in the castle most of the time. And only occasionally would they go out to holiday at these remote houses. Even then people, this was like a holiday thing. It wasn't people went out to live in these giant houses with giant grass lawns for the whole year. It was not a way, exactly as you said, it's not a way to build community. It's not a way to be close to what's important. It's not. A, and so that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if they look at mental health issues with the suburbs, which I think are isolating. I, I think when you go walking in the suburbs at night, you do see the same thing, that glow of people's yeah. monitors, the glow of the TV, people hiding in their little boxes away from everyone else, which they think they want that. But again, it, it is anti-community. It's hard to build relationships yeah. with people who are hiding. And, and, and because the servant sprawl is so car-driven, it, it dehumanizes the entire community because you're in a bubble protected and outside of what <laughs> you actually would normally see, like right. the metaphorical bubble and a literal bubble. Uh, and so, for example, my, my father actually, who, who I, was, I was born and raised in the suburbs, so I know them well. Me too, That's yes. I don't live there anymore. Uh, uh, but he's working on a project that actually built housing for the working poor. So these are people that are visible in a lot of urban centers because you're walking around and see them and you know it's a problem. But if you interview or do surveys, not interview, but survey people yeah. in the suburbs, they don't think there are poor people in the suburbs because they don't see them. Right. Whereas you see them in a place that's walkable and a place that is equitable. And so the suburbs actually dehumanize people by extracting them from their actual community and human connection to the point of they're not even aware of the problems in their own community anymore. So they'll actually vote for politicians that make their communities worse without even realizing it because they don't know how bad their neighbors actually have it. And to me, that's heartbreaking. And that's another reason why I don't think we could go another 20 years of building suburbs because I don't think we as a civilization can handle that distance, the mental distance, the community distance. Uh, would you think, so thinking about all those human problems, if you were, it does make me think about the suburban sprawl. Again, to me, the easiest play is talking about how bad it is for nature. And then the harder play is, I don't know, when, when you get wrapped up in people's psychology about how they feel about their neighbors and how they feel about the poor or the rich, I, I, every individual is so complicated. I wonder if it's always just easier to go to the, 
look, the world's burning down. Don't think about how complicated your own community is or all the judgmental feelings you have about all the people around you. At least we can all come together in the fact that we don't like to see this town burn down or we don't all want to live under clouds of toxic, toxic pollution. But there's, uh, there's always all these complicated human psychology things going under the surface of all these. Yeah, but I think here, here here's a way to connect it all together. Right? The, yeah. the fish game, the trolley game. Yes, bring it back. This the suburbs game. What are those all about? Right, it's about fundamentally questioning what you know, how you know it, and uh, those those fundamental truths that you might have about how the world operates and functions. Right, and so I, I guess that's like a project from all of my work. To, I don't know. Like maybe this is a way of thinking about it. Yeah, is to say I'm calling for people to do that reflection to actually think about. What are the underlying assumptions of why I want to live this particular way? Why I value these particular values? Do the hard thinking. The trolley problem game is hard, not because the game is hard, but the challenges presented to you are difficult to think through. And I want to call for that same level of inquiry through all aspects of our lives. That's a very ambitious goal, but the things with goals are, you know, they're there. Do you always have to hit them? No, but like, keep trying. <laughs> It's in the journey. It's it's in the journey, not the destination, right? Like, <laughs> like well, I think you hit. Yes, now you have painted a giant. I I can see the grand design behind your game work now. Yeah, and like, and even like that first game I was talking about that we took place in the city. That was about getting people to explore parts of the city they wouldn't otherwise have seen. So it's it's about going back to that core idea of play and transgression and being like, here's a safe place for you to explore ideas and the consequences of those ideas without them directly impacting your life. Because a lot of times you say to someone like, hey, the suburbs are bad. They'd be like, but I live in the suburbs. You're calling me bad. Yes. And it's like, no, but I don't, like, I'm not calling you a bad person, <laughs> right? To say the built environment that came before us is not conducive to a sustainable lifestyle and is therefore a bad quality. That's very different than saying you as an individual are a bad person for living there. It is hard. That's so... I that comment does make me think about, um, so I love that TV show, uh, The Good Place, and the big moral quandary that winds oh, up with The Good Place is they, they discover, and I loved the turn, they discover that it's impossible to do the right thing anymore. So that's why everyone has been, uh, spoiler alert, everyone's been going to hell and no one's been going to heaven because the algorithm they set up for a time way before when all you had to do was think about your neighbors. And now you can't just think about your house and your grass. You need to think about the fundamental development of civic planning that goes into creating this thing and how it affects the entire world. It is so hard to do the right thing, the quote unquote right thing or the perfectly right thing as an individual. So I think morality has become far more complicated than it used to be. And I think we're, we are wrestling with that too. Absolutely. And like going back to like, I, I, I'm a fan uh, of experts who can be questioned, right? And like, do I think it's fair that me as, as, as an individual, I should be thinking about all these things? No, I don't think it's fair at all. <laughs> right. Like, I, I think it's awful that we find ourselves in a situation, but we have found ourselves here because we, we keep praising this individualistic attitude. Whereas I, like, I don't know how my body works as well as I know more, but I'm, I personally know more about urban design than I do my own inner design. <laughs> and, uh, and this is out of my own interests, right? Sure. But I'll, so I'll go to a doctor to be like, doctor, why, why don't things work the way they should? And the doctor will just tell me what I want. I'm like, okay, great, thanks. Like problem solved. 
I don't need to know more. I'm happy on on the, the fact that I know my doctor is is a doctor, knows what he's doing, and all that like tools and resources behind him. Uh, but yet, as an individual, like I'm expected to figure out, am I living in a sustainable community? Right. I don't have to go and figure out, hey, is my doctor's education valid? Is it good enough? Do I need to see my doctor's like grades? No, I trust the system that's been established for years and years and years. The doctor educational system has, has worked effectively. Yeah. But why don't we do that with urban planning? Why aren't we doing that with other disciplines? Right. And that's not like doctors aren't out of the realm of question, being able to question what they do and how they do things. Right. We're not saying doctors are, are, are God kings among men. <laughs> right. Right. And that's not what I'm calling for. But at the same time, as an individual, I think it's a little much to expect all of us to know all things at all time. And we need to be able to be OK with saying these are experts in their field and I trust them because I, I have enough information to trust them with. 